started here, and I want to start with the question, how many of you at some point in your education had to read the Lord of the Flies book? Raise your hand high if you had, were, okay, excellent, all right. It, it happens to most of us, it's almost like a, a, a rite of passage. I think for me it was ninth grade English class, we, we read the book, watched the movie, and um, even if you avoided this fate, you probably know the gist of the story. A bunch of pre-adolescent boys, yikes, are marooned. I have no idea what that, I'm just going to leave that there. Did it break? Did it turn everything off? Or is it just, oh no, I'm still there. Okay. So a bunch of pre-adolescent boys are marooned on a deserted island. Nobody's going to pay attention to me now, are you? All you're going to think about is the mic falling over and if it's going to happen again. Um, I didn't do it. Let's just say that. Um, they're, they're on this island with no grown-ups, right? And so they sort of turn feral, right? They're, they were painting faces. They're shedding clothes. They're fighting and bullying and scapegoating. And eventually they drive into or divide into rival clans. They harass and torment each other. It um, gets violent at some point. And by the time they are rescued, the whole thing is like a, a, the island is a smoldering wasteland. And three of these kids are dead, right? And the big line at the end of the story, oh, over here, eyes over here, the, the, the big line at the end of the story is, comes from the main characters. Right when he gets, he gets um, rescued, or, or he sees these guys who are coming to rescue them. And it says, this guy wept for the end of innocence and the darkness of man's heart, right? Okay, now, this book has kind of come to symbolize the way most people in the West see human nature. If left to our own devices, we'll just descend into tribalism and violence, and it's like Lord of the Flies. In fact, you'll hear Lord of the Flies referencing culture often to sort of symbolize humanity's dark side. Recently, there's this Dutch historian who I kind of like, I follow him actually, which is a nerdy thing to do, but I do. I like him a lot. And he started to question the influence of Lord of the Flies. And he's a historian, so he reminds everybody, it's not a true story. Like, this isn't based on real events. It was the invention of this British novelist named William Golding. It was published in 1954 on the heels of, like, the Holocaust, nuclear um, atom bombs, concentration camps, World War II. And, and the Lord of the Flies sort of captured some of that pessimism. And what's more, William Golding was kind of a troubled, troubled man. Um, by day, he was this famous author, you know, like the winner of the Nobel Prize, knighted by Queen Elizabeth. But at, by night, he, he was kind of tormented by his own insecurities. He was a raging alcoholic who just was emotionally and verbally abusive to his family, especially his kids. He played mind games with them constantly. And, and really, he kind of jacked them up. I mean, they were like, it was substance abuse and psychological issues for their whole lives. He sort of created a Lord of the Flies family. And this historian, this Rudker Bregman guy, he, he was asking, is this really what human beings are, are like? And he, he scoured, he's an historian, so he scours the historical record to find a, a real life 
Lord of the Flies situation, which he had trouble doing because apparently um, children don't get shipwrecked together that often and then found. It was probably a good thing. But he actually did find one, and he chased down two of the remaining survivors to tell their story. It happened in like 1965. A group of six boys, ages 13 to 16, were studying at a Catholic boarding school in the island nation of Tonga. And they got tired of the nuns and their oppressive rules and their horrible diet, and they decided to run away. And so they stole a whaling boat, a little boat, and headed for Fiji, which is like 500 miles away. They did not think this through. Um, anyway, one night out, they set anchor and they fell asleep. All of them. Nobody stayed up. And then the storm came up, and it just trashed the boat. And so they end up um, adrift for eight days with no food and water. Finally, they ran aground on this little island called um, Atta. And the story that unfolded over the next 15 months was nothing like the Lord of the Flies book. Um, Atta Island is this giant rock sticking out of the ocean with cliffs on all sides. And for the first few months, they were trapped on the beach. They couldn't find a way to climb up the, the, tr the cliffs to the, what looked like a forest up on top. They just couldn't find a way up. They kept trying every single day, and they couldn't. So they were just surviving on, on uh, raw fish and birds and bird eggs. I won't tell you exactly how they survived because it's, it's not good. But about three months in, they finally found a way up to the top. And they found this old settlement. Apparently, a native people had lived here. Um, but they had been carried off centuries early, earlier by um, slave traders. And they found this, this jungle. They actually found a machete left behind. This was huge for them. They could cut coconuts and, and wild um, bananas were up there. And there was, there was other vegetation. And there was wood, finally, so they could build a fire. They could have a fire. And if you read Lord of the, Re or Lord of the Flies, you know that the fire is the cause of a, a bunch of conflict in that book. But here, it was, it's the opposite. It, it became this source of community and duty for them. In fact, they took shifts watching it, and in the next year, the fire didn't go out a single time, never, even in the rain. They in engineered this system for harvesting water from the trees. They knew they held a bunch of water, and they, they, they found a way to, to pool that at the bottom of them. They heard roosters crowing and went looking for them, and they caught chickens that had survived and bred there for like 100 years from the earlier settlement. They made a massive pen. At one point, they had like 200 chickens laying eggs, so they had this constant diet of fresh eggs. They built sturdy shelters. They brought the fire indoors. Um, they said it was warm, and so since it was warm, inside at night, the rats would come in. But they just tried to not think about that, but the rats were there at night, so fun, fun. Um, they built a cook stove. A cook stove. They, they rationed their food. They um, found native vegetables. They planted a garden, for heaven's sakes. And then they set up like a, a schedule, like a work roster, working in teams of two, caring for the garden, pulling kitchen or guard duty. And when they quarreled, they had a rule that if you got in a fight, you had to um, leave for four hours, just to time out, go cool off and then come back. One of the boys made a makeshift guitar from driftwood and some wire that they harvested from the boat. Um, this is actually a picture of them a few years later with their little guitar. They wrote songs and wrote down there like 20, 30 songs that they wrote together. Most of them were kind of funny. And, and they, they would play songs and tell jokes. And they would literally gather every morning and evening for morning and evening prayer, sing a song, say a prayer. And, and it wasn't like fun it wasn't easy by any stretch. In the, in the dry summer, they went nearly crazy with thirst and dehydration. They, it was so bad, they built a raft to try to 
escape, and it, and it wrecked on the rocks, and, and it got all cr um, cut up. One boy actually at, some, at one point fell and broke his leg. And um, so it was rough, but they didn't turn on each other, right? They rallied together. Fifteen months they lived like this until the captain of this lobster boat um, was cruising by and spotted these, you know, wild-haired boys naked, waving and screaming at him. One of them, the guy on guard duty, runs down and leaps in the water, swim, swims out to the boat, and he's speaking English. And the guy didn't buy his story. They used to um, dump uh, prisoners off on these kind of islands, so he's kind of afraid. And so he made him stay in the water, and, and he radioed and checked out, and the people on the radio were like crying and sobbing, like, we thought we, we, they were dead. We all had funerals for them. And so he rescues them, feeds them. The next day he goes, and they show him what they have done, how they lived. And the captain wrote this in his journal. He said, the boys have set up a small commune with a food garden, hollowed out tree trunks to store rainwater, a gymnasium with curious weights, a badminton court, chicken pens, and a permanent fire, all from handiwork, an old knife blade, and much determination. And these two survivors that Bregman talked to were old men now, but the story they told was of this strong bond of friendship and brotherhood that they forged, that had connected these guys their whole life long. They were lifelong friends. In fact, this is a picture of them um, with, their, with the captain who got them. Years later, all six of them were hired by that guy to work his boat. They, wor they worked together for years after that on, on his little fishing boat. I mean, isn't that, isn't that stunning? For years, we've been told the Lord of the Flies reveals the true nature of humanity. And it turns out that was actually the imagination of a very tortured soul. And the one historical example of a time that this actually happened resulted in friendship and sacrifice and brotherhood that lasts a lifetime. And this is something that we talk about kind of a lot at Redemption Church, that the, the way we narrate the world is incredibly important because the, the story we tell, it kind of helps us make sense of what's happening in the world and in our lives. Stanley Harris is one of my guys. He says, we are story-formed creatures, and we live in story-formed communities. And so the story that we tell ourselves about the world and what it means to be human will shape the meaning of like the past and the present, and it will, will shape the future, almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy because our story determines our imagination for what's possible in the world. The writer Joan Didion says, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. We live entirely by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, in, uh, which is our actual experience. I have no idea what phantasmagoria means, but it sort of sounds my, like my life feels in times of chaos, right? Um, when it's not clear what's, what's real and what's imagined, what, what's true and, and what is an illusion, and so to make sense of my life in those times, I, I tell a story. That's what we do. We I mean, think how much of our common everyday conversation is just telling stories to each other about what happened today. Well, what's happened in a, in a friend's life that they told you, a story they told you, relaying that. Stories like of those we care about, of joys and struggles that are frustrating or hilarious. Almost every conversation we have is storytelling. 
especially when life gets difficult or confusing. And we tell our stories to try to find our story, find a place for it in a larger story that can help us interpret it, make meaning of the events of life. We're constantly telling stories. And it shapes our view of reality and what happened in the past, what's going on right now, and, and what's going to happen in the future. And so there's a, there's a sense in which story is power, man. Have you ever thought of that? Story is power. It's a powerful thing. They shape who we are. You could say maybe like um, people don't tell stories so much as stories tell people. They tell our lives. And so if you can control someone's story, you can control their, their life. That's why not everybody's on the up and up in the way that they tell stories. I mean, this is the point of propaganda, right? To tell stories in like a biased, slanted way so you can control people's interpretation of reality. If you, if you ever read people like George Orwell, that's another one you have to read in class, 1984, or, or Hannah Arendt, people who lived through it and studied propaganda, they say you can always tell the propagandist because they lie so much. The stories that they tell are basically an assault on truth itself. Their, their goal isn't even really to, to push their version of reality, just to exhaust everyone with a story of lies, lies, lies. This guy, Gary Kasparov, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was like the, the he's that um, Russian chess grandmaster who used to play the computer. Um, and he, he's like one of the greatest of all time, but he lived through the Cold War and Russian propaganda. He said this, the point of modern propaganda isn't only to misinform or push an agenda. It is to exhaust your critical thinking, to annihilate truth. That's a guy who lived, lived through it. The, the modern propagandist just deluges the public with these stories they're just filled with lies. And if they get caught, all they say is, well, everything's a lie. You know, it, it's all fake. And it's, it's exhausting. It just wears people down. They start to wonder if there is any true story. And the, the, the problem is, really, kind of once you erode the truth, once you convince somebody there might not be any true story, the danger isn't they'll believe in nothing. The danger is they'll believe in anything. Without a true story, we just become really easy to control. I mean, the, the propagandists, they, they don't stop telling their story once everybody realizes it's a lie. They, they, they just tell these Lord of the Fly stories that make things like injustice and violence and death seem inevitable. And throughout his life, we see Jesus patiently and carefully reinterpreting his followers' view of reality, in large part by telling them a different story. And we'd even just tell stories, like these things called parables. But the way he told them was opposite of the normal way. He would flip the ending of it so that it kind of inverted insiders and outsiders and underdogs. He'd make them the heroes. And, and it, it would celebrate small things over big and weak things over strong and love and self-sacrifice as the pathway to peace. Last week we talked about how after crucifixion, the remaining apostles and this larger group of disciples, 70, 80, maybe more, were gathered in the upper room 
Mary and some of the women come back from the tomb and they're like, he, his body's gone. And we saw an angel who said he is risen. And the next thing that happens in the gospel of Luke, um, just before what we read earlier, next thing that happens is two of the guys with him, not part of the, the original 12, but some of the others, they head home to this little village called Emmaus, a couple hours walk maybe. And Jesus, on the road, comes alongside them, although for some reason they can't recognize him. This is the thing that keeps happening in the resurrection. He's there, but they can't tell it's him. And he asks them what they're talking about, and they couldn't believe he didn't know, and so they just tell him the whole story, because that's what we do, right? We tell stories about this friend of theirs, Jesus, who was this powerful prophet. I mean, they saw him do some stuff. And they thought he was the one who would redeem Israel, but then he was arrested and crucified, and they were just crushed heartbroken. Then some of their friends like went to the tomb and they said he's risen, his body's in there. They, don't, they have no idea what to think. So they just tell this story to this guy they don't even know, right? And, and, and they don't know it's Jesus, but we know. And then it says this, then he interpreted for them the things that were written about himself in all the scriptures, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets. So in response to their confusion, he tells a story. He reinterprets their story. The word there is dierme nuo in Greek. It's, it's, you can kind of hear it, dierme. It's where we get hermeneutics. Interpretation, right? He, he's pointing out the resonances then between current things that are happening and stuff in the law and the prophets, what they say about Messiah. Because the way that they usual, um, usually tell this story of Messiah, it doesn't have a place for death and resurrection of a Messiah. And so he's reinterpreting their story for them. And it says it's like, it's almost night, and they go to, um, he, he goes to like pass by, and they're like, just stay with us, hang with us. They sit down to eat a meal, he breaks the bread, and their eyes are open. They realize it's him. And then he vanishes. That's the story. He vanishes, just like that. Then it says their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight, they ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Twice here in this little bit, um, we have the word opened. You know, when it repeats in proximity, this is, this is usually a sign. Um, their, their eyes need to be open. This is understanding. Their, their interpretation of scripture needs to open up because it's closed down, right? The, the, um, the Greek word used there for open is um, um, dianoigo is the word. And the, the reason that's important is just, it's just interesting. The word has this implication that whatever's being open has to be forced open because it's been closed up, right? And the way it's forced open is something is going to dramatically pass through it. Like it, what it made me think of is if, if you let your, had your ear pierced and then it closes up, if you want to Open it back up again. You got There's going to be some pain, right? You have to pass something through it. In fact, the original meaning of this word is a firstborn child opening up the mother's womb. There's this connotation of labor, of pain, um, of birthing, and so so the presence here of the risen Christ is sort of passing through their reality and kind of prying open their closed minds. It's forcing open this closed story with regard to their scriptures. And once they realize it, I mean, they're on fire. Their hearts are on fire. And they just, they turn right around and head back to Jerusalem. They're all 
again together, talking about what's happening. This is what it says. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. He's always saying peace, right? And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Okay, so once again here, um, he appears to those who knew him in life, but they can't recognize him. They can't comprehend what they're seeing. Closest category they have is that he's got to be a ghost or something. He's like, I'm not a ghost. He shows them his, his hands and feet. They still can't get their minds ar- around it. And so he then begins this reinterpretation of their story. These are my words, he says, that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law from Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened, Dionoigo again, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and a change of heart and life for the forgiveness of sins must be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So in both these little scenes here, in Emmaus and then in the upper room, you have his followers struggling to come to grips with their reality. And then you have Jesus resurrected from the dead. And the problem in each story is that they're closed off in their interpretation of the story of God. Their, their eyes are closed, right? They can't see this new thing. Their, their minds are closed. They can't think outside the box that they're in. And they're, they're hiding in fear of in essence, the power of death. And that's, that's why they're hiding out. They killed him. They think, we might be next. They're hiding in fear of death. And so, in these stories, it's Jesus' resurrected body that has to de-annoigo, has to force its way in and through their closed-off reality and try to open them up to a new story, a whole new interpretation of reality. One in which... Death doesn't have the final word. Resurrection does. And this is, this is key. It's this new reality in which Christ somehow has victory over death. This is how he reinterprets their story. And this victory is not like a Lord of the Flies kind of conquer war domination victory. It, it, it comes when they accept him as Messiah. And, and let him de-annoigo, let him pass through them, which he describes as metanoia, repent, change your hearts and lives, change your direction. And, and they'll experience then forgiveness of sins, and they can then carry this message to all the nations as witnesses. And sort of taken together, these two stories, I think, they teach us that after, after the resurrection, there's always more to the story than what we can see within our closed system, our closed reality. And it just simply won't fit within our old story. It almost doesn't matter what the old story is. We're going to have to somehow open up to new possibilities 
new ways of seeing the world. Open up, dianoigo, like let something pass through us. And the way that, that we open up is to, to let the risen Christ be the thing that passes through us, right? I mean, we've been told a story of how the world works our whole life long. Still happening. It's, it's Lord of the Flies out there, right? You know, I mean, people are, people are lunatics. And then left to our own devices, we'll kill and ruin everything. So we need to live in fear of death. That's the propaganda of culture. And this is... This fear of death also is how we're controlled by the powers of the world. The religious powers control us through fear of hell and death and damnation. The political powers tell us who to be afraid of, who's trying to kill us, right? Who are enemies. But resurrection tells a very different story in which death is overcome by love, by the love of God. A love that, by the way, is marked by self-sacrifice. And it's not a one-off thing. I mean, our conviction as, as Christians is that what we glimpse in Christ's resurrection is our future. Where the world is headed. The future of all humanity. The, the early church is interesting. They had this thing that they would say about Jesus. They called him the firstborn of the dead. It's in, in Colossians. Firstborn like Dionoigo, firstborn, opens the womb, opens the way, and it kind of paves the way, and the other children follow along. Jesus shows us our future, shows us our way in his resurrected body. He's the beginning of this new story. I mean, that, that's what he does. He's the firstborn of the dead. Jesus has opened up the womb of new creation, you could say, and, and we can all be born again from above, born of the Spirit to this new world in which, you know, Jesus is kind of asking for a simple exchange. Stop going this way. Go this way, the way I'm headed. I mean, that's repent, right? Change your heart and life. And that what this does is it takes away the problem of sin and death. Sin is gone, and the new reality is led by resurrection, not death. That's kind of the simple movement. And, and here's the thing. If this story is true, then the religious and political powers have a problem. Because how will they control people who believe in resurrection and forgiveness? What are they going to threaten us with to control us? They threaten us with eternal life? You know, threaten us with resurrection? How's that going to work? I mean, sure, if death is the end of the story, we can be easily controlled by propaganda and war and enemies. But if resurrection is the end of the story, then it, trans it transforms the meaning of everything, of all of life. And our story becomes a story of faith and hope and love, a story of mercy and forgiveness that incidentally leads to not just forgiveness in the end, but a better way to live all along. The story of grace, which is endless second chances. I mean, hear me, endless second chances. How does this change life? Endless second chances. If death no longer has the final word, what are we going to be afraid of? If we're not afraid, how will we be controlled, you know? I mean, think of what this story can do to us in the world. Instead of manipulating us, this story just 
like sets us free, man. But it's like we've been hearing that old story for so long that we're, we're always a bit closed off, right? We're always a little bit in a, in, in a crouch, waiting. And I think this is why the, the lectionary has us talking about Thomas last week and Emmaus and the upper room story in the weeks following Easter. This is what we do with Eastertide. We're like, yeah, this is going to be hard to believe. Because we've been born into a Lord of the Flies version of reality. And by the way, you guys, way too many Christians cling to that tired script. It's, just, it's, it's not our story. And they do it, ooh, it makes me upset. They do it to control people. Because they need cannon fodder for their stupid culture wars. That is, that is not our thing. Jesus was not in a war with his culture. The only people he really seemed to have beef with were the religious people who used people like cannon fodder to control them in their power games. We have been born into a Lord of the Flies story, but that is not our story. And we've seen that story play out, right? In every mass shooting, in every... stinking black body that gets shot. Every war, every famine, in acts of violence, in addiction, in broken families, in carelessness with creation, in systemic poverty and injustice, in our individualism and consumerism and nationalism, in our just like foolish culture wars that are tearing us apart. Guys, we struggle with those things, and they still dominate our world, not because they're true. It's just the story we got told. It's not the story. It's not our story. But it's hard because, man, it's just a lot easier to believe in death than resurrection. That's why I love this line. It was great in the, in the translation that, that Ginny read from. Um, the common English Bible says it this way. They were wondering and questioning in the midst of their happiness. I think that's it. That's what it means to be a Christian. Like we're wondering and questioning and full of doubt in the midst of this joy that, that inhabits the church, the kingdom of God. Resurrection, it... it controverts and challenges the story we've been told our whole life. And, and that narrative is everywhere. And it's, it's hard to believe something different. I think this is actually the meaning in part of the two meals. The one with the bread and Emmaus and then the one with the, the fish in the upper room. He, he's demonstrating for us that the experience of God's presence is meant to be as common and as ordinary as just sitting down to eat with your friends. That's it. That's what it takes. That, that experience is what opens us up. It's also why when they do that, he disappears. And so they're just left with each other. He's like, I'm not doing this for you. Like, it's in each other to point us toward each other. Because after resurrection, we'll get to this, you know, in the flow of Eastertide, after the breathing out of the Holy Spirit, we can experience the presence of Christ anytime we're with one another. That's the story. 
I mean, you and I don't get to do what Thomas did. We don't get to go to Emmaus and recognize him in the breaking of bread. We don't get to be in the upper room when he comes in and is like, I'm not a ghost, right? He, we don't get to do those things. We don't get to share fish with him. And so it's easy to stay closed off to that. And much of the work of discipleship involves learning to find a way to open back up to new insights, to a new way of telling our story that's just scandalously free and open and filled with grace and endless second chances. And, and, but requires an ability to, to open up to strange beliefs and many strange others. And so we may not have the, the table in Emmaus or the upper room, but we, we do have this table where we can all come. And we, we do have this, this promise that whenever two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm in the midst of them. And so as we, as we take up our cross and try to live together in, in the midst of a different story, then, then what this story tells us is ultimately the miracle of resurrection is not just that it happened. It's that it still happens all the time when we learn how to die to each other. All the little deaths, new life is raised from that. That's the miracle of it. As we lay down our lives for our friends and begin to live in that new story, right? Resurrection happens. When we reach out to those on the margins and pull them in. When we forgive and forget and offer grace. When we when we just love all of the ragamuffins of the world and just stop denying that we're part of that, part of the brokenness and part of the ragamuffin stuff, then we'll experience this new life overcoming death. And we'll actually be, it says, you'll be my, you'll be my witnesses. The word witness, if you remember in Greek, is marturo. It's where we get the word martyr. You'll be my witnesses. You know how to die. And, and because of that, knowing how to die, you'll be, you'll just, your life will scream resurrection. And those who lay down their lives for their, their friends, they can do this because they're not afraid of death. Because death isn't the end of our story. And that means that like those six Tongan castaway boys who apparently had not read Lord of the Flies, we are free to live in a different story, one of love and friendship and self-sacrifice for the other. I mean, it is a challenge. It is a challenge to believe that actually when two or three are gathered together in his mode of being, he passes through us. He opens us up to a whole new story that is really, really hard to see with our eyes. But this is, this is what we're doing. This is what it means to follow Jesus. We're trying to live within and embody a whole new story. And what he does is he just continuously points us toward the other and says, this is it. It doesn't get any more complicated than these guys right here. Love these guys right here. That's it. And then I'll pass through you, and you'll open up, and, 
and all the things that start dying in you, will, new life will come out of that, and then it's, it's off to the races. It's a whole new story. This is resurrection. This, this, is what we're, this is what we're in for if we follow this one. Amen? Let's pray. God, we're just, um, we're just so tired of a terrible story that's being told all around us. And it's a lot of religious folks too, man, and it's politicians and it's people who think they know. And we're just so grateful to have this story of all the ragamuffins and the doubters and the, and the people who are just barely holding it together and filled with joy and amazement, but confusion and, and wondering. And this is where we are every Easter tide. And we're grateful to be in this place. We want so much for you to just come and open us, pass through us, live among us. Help us see the world the way that you do. I pray that for each of us, there will be a repentance, just a decision. I'm going to live this way. I'll follow this story. And for each of us right now, I pray that we could just resolve this. I want this story to be my story. We love you, Lord. We pray these things and ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. We invite you to stand. And it's our turn to come to the table. Actually, the table comes to you, right? In our in shrink-wrapped form, which, sorry, it's lame, I know. If, but if you didn't receive uh, the communion elements, Beth is right in the center in the back. You can grab one from her. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and broke it and handed it around to his guys. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And um, then after supper, he took the cup also in the same way, passed it around. They all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, like a new deal between you and God. And he said, every time you gather, do this, eat the bread, drink the cup in remembrance of me. Remember this way my way of being, this new story that you're a part of. And then it's like literally receive it into you. Eat it. Become it. Right? And he said, every time you gather, do this. So that's, that's why we do it. Um, so I would just invite you to hold the elements in front of you. And let's, um, let's pray a blessing on them. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be your witnesses. Let us be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. I invite you to receive communion now and join us in our, our closing song.